1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll read verses 1 through 16 and begin our study this morning of this chapter, dealing specifically with this issue of head coverings, which is what the chapter is about, in part. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and there the word of Christ says this, "'Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ.'" Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaven. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. It is a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word that you've given to us. And Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, teach us, Lord, that you would make uh, this passage, Lord, in all passages, Lord, that you would make them clear to us, that we would have an accurate understanding of your word. So, Lord, that we might know uh, the way of righteousness, that we might know how to live a life that is pleasing to you. So, Lord, as we embark on this study of 1 Corinthians 11, we ask, Lord, for you to be with us, for you to be our teacher and guide, and that, Lord, we would hear the voice of Christ, Lord, here in this passage, and that we would know his voice and that we would follow him and walk in his way. So, Lord, help us, give us clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we begin this passage this morning that teaches about uh, the head coverings for women in the public assembly. And typically, we don't jump into the middle of a book, uh, right in the middle of it. We're accustomed to preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. But in this case, we're making an exception to the rule in order to deal with an issue. So it's not that there's anything wrong with dealing with a topic uh, here or there. The issue is, whatever topic it is, what does the Bible teach about it, right? What does the Bible say? And go to the scriptures and see what does the scripture teach concerning these things. Now, the book of Corinthians is a very useful book. For in it, the apostle is dealing systematically with many issues 
that will be common in all churches throughout all ages. Right? That's why the Word of God remains so practical, so relevant for us today. Right? Though these letters are written to people that lived hundreds, thousands of years ago, yet they remain relevant for us because the issues that he's dealing with are the issues that will be common in every generation. And that's why the Word of God is so profitable for us. Because the apostle gives definitive, authoritative, clear teachings on all of these issues so that we know what is the mind of Christ concerning these matters and how we are to live a life faithfully before him. We must remember that Jesus Christ is Lord of the church, right? We belong to him. His word on any issue is the only word that matters, His word is the final word of authority on every issue for the church. He possesses ultimate authority over his church. We are his people. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. He is our master. And our goal in everything should be to know what is the mind of Christ and to submit to his will. To as best as we can conform our lives as closely as possible to the life of Christ. Whether that be us individually in our own life, or whether that be in the home, in the church, whatever it is, conformity to Christ is everything for the Christian and for the Christian church. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice there what it says. He says, flee, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. We are bought with a price. That price being the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that purchase is true of us both individually as Christians, but also collectively as a church. The church has been purchased by Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We are not our own. We are his. We are to honor him in everything that we do. Also notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Notice here in these verses how many times the apostle calls Jesus Christ our Lord, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over, this is what he's saying about Christ, because Christ is our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosothenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place Call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm to you, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you are called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there, 
Six times in those nine verses, he refers to Jesus Christ as our Lord. He is our Lord. He is Lord of the church. So the church must submit in all things to him. And that's what the apostle is doing in this letter to the church in Corinth. He's rebuking them for the many areas in which they are not in conformity to Christ. And then he's instructing them, correcting them in the mind of Christ and expecting that they conform their lives to Christ. And this will have application to every area of life, including the way the church behaves and conducts itself when it gathers together for public assembly. When the church gathers as we are now, is it a free-for-all? Do we just do whatever we want to do? Do we do whatever seems good and right and pleasing in our own life or in our own mind? And the answer is no. In all things, we are to please Christ. We are to submit to his lordship. And we know that a part of the Christian life is the gathering together. That's what we read earlier from Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, that we should not forsake the public assembling together, but that we should meet together regularly doing this. So when we meet together, what are the rules established by Christ for the way that we conduct ourselves in the gathering? Again, is it a free-for-all? Do we just do what we think is right and best in our own eyes and in our own mind? And the answer is, of course not. Because the Bible gives to us many rules for how we are to conduct ourselves, right? What we are to do and how we are to behave and conduct ourselves when we gather together to worship the Lord. So the public assembling must be governed by the commandments of Christ so that when we come together, it is for God's glory and for our good. Because there is the potential that when we come together, it's not for our good. That it actually is for our harm and it's not for our benefit. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Verse 17. He says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. We don't want that to be true of us. We want that our coming together is for the better, for God's glory, for our good, and not for the worse. Well, how do we make sure that when we meet together, it's for the better and not for the worse? We obey Christ. We submit to the will of Christ. Then it will be for our good. This is what he's addressing, not only in 1 Corinthians, this is what the whole Bible is addressing from cover to cover, but this is what he's addressing with this church in Corinth. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, from chapters 11 through chapter 14, what the apostle is dealing with is rules for the public gathering, right? When they gather together to worship God, how is the church to conduct itself during these meetings, right? When they are gathered together, right? Chapter 11 addresses proper order in the church, through proper authority in roles of men and roles of women. And it deals with this symbol of the head covering in order to establish this order within the church. The second half of chapter 11 deals with how we are to take the Lord's Supper. He gives there the clearest instructions in the Bible on how it is that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12 addresses the proper use of spiritual gifts in the church for the edification of the body and not for selfish ambition. So that's what he's dealing with in chapter 12. Chapter 13 teaches about love, 
love as the ruling virtue for the use of spiritual gifts within the church. And then in chapter 14, he continues addressing the proper place of spiritual gifts, specifically in relation to the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, and then concludes making sure that the exercising of these gifts is done in an orderly and in a proper manner because God is not a God of confusion, but he is a God of peace and a God of order. So this is the context in which 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16 resides, teaching from the apostle for how the church is to conduct itself when it gathers together for public worship, for corporate worship. So let's go there, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 today. This is an introductory to the topic that is at hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. This is the overarching rule that governs everything, everything in the church. Whether we're talking about what comes before 1 Corinthians 11 or whether we're talking about what comes after 1 Corinthians 11, everything in the Bible, right, in this book and in every other book, this is what it is all dealing with. Conformity to Christ. Imitation of Christ. This should be the desire of all Christians and all Christian churches is to imitate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that the goal set forward by the apostle? He's telling them, you Corinthians, you imitate me. But the imitation of the apostle is not an end in itself. But the imitation of the apostle serves a greater purpose. It is a means to achieving the ultimate end of all things in the church, which is the imitation of Jesus Christ. This is all that should matter for any Christian. To imitate Christ, not to be accepted by the world, not popularity in the world, not conformity to the world or the customs of this world, but conformity to Jesus Christ. And we know that conformity to Christ is not going to be accepted by the world. We know that when we imitate Christ, that people are going to hate us. They're going to mock us. They're going to ridicule us. They're not going to accept us if we imitate Christ. But that doesn't matter. All that matters is to be like Christ. Even if we're ridiculed, even if we are mocked, shamefully treated, even if we're persecuted, even if people call us ugly names, and they will. They'll call us legalist. They'll call us misogynist. They'll say that we hate women, which we don't hate women. We love women. We love women more than they do. They'll, but they'll accuse us of hating women, of being tyrants, right? Of being fat slobs and pigs, right? This is what they'll say about us. But in all of these things, it doesn't matter what the world says. The issue for us is what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach are the biblical roles for men and for women, and if we hold to those things, we can rest assured that we will be hated by all for the sake of Christ, especially in our own present godless generation in which we find ourselves that hates what the Bible says about men and women. It hates what the Bible says about marriage. It hates all of these things. So why should we be surprised that the world would find us and find these teachings offensive? What the Bible teaches 
is contrary to the practice of this present world, which, again, despises the proper role of men and women. The world despises male headship in the home, in the church, and in society. But for the Christian, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what the flesh says. It doesn't matter what the devil says. All we should care about is the will of Christ. Conformity to Christ and not conformity to this evil world. Who cares what the world says about men and women? About marriage, right? About the roles of husbands and wife. Who cares what the world says about head coverings, right? All that matters is what does Christ say on this issue? And I want to know his mind, his will, so that we can do and follow the will of Christ. This is as it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of Christ, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Don't be conformed to this world. But instead, what does he say? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And where is our mind going to be renewed at? The word of Christ. It's always going to be the word of God. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Notice what he says. In verse 1, Exodus 23, 1 says, You shall not bear a false witness. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Do not follow the masses in doing evil, in doing evil. So if what the world is doing, right, what is the, the customs of the world? If those customs contradict the customs of the Bible, then what do we have to do? Don't follow the world. Don't follow the masses. Don't follow the world. Don't follow the multitude in doing these evil things. Also, Joshua 24. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Notice what the prophet Joshua says. Joshua 24, 14 says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? That's the question. That's always the question. Who are we going to serve? Who are we going to imitate? Are we going to serve the gods of America? Are we going to imitate the godless atheist? Are we going to imitate the feminist? Are we going to imitate the secularist? Are we going to take our marching orders from the sickos at Harvard or Yale or any of these other Ivy League institutions? What about those bastions of morality up in Washington, D.C.? Are we going to let them tell us what is good and proper and right for women? What about the weirdos at Disney World, right, who they're doing all sorts of weird things, or the New York Times or, or Hollywood? 
These are some of the most deviant people in the history of the world. So why would we let those wicked people tell us, Christians, what is good and right for men and women? Right? What is good and right for women and for them how to conduct themselves? Who are we going to imitate? Christ or the devil? The righteous or the unrighteous? Well, what does the apostle say here? He tells us, Christian men must ultimately imitate Christ. Christian women must imitate Christ. We are called to serve and follow him in all things, even if it seems bizarre and unusual and contrary to the customs of this world, even if we are mocked and ridiculed, even if we're called the scum of the earth, even if we become a spectacle in the eyes of this world. And this has to do with the Christian life. Right? He's introducing the topic, this topic of authority, right, of order, the roles of men and women, the symbol of the head covering, Right? He's introducing these topics as issues related to the imitation of Christ. That means these have to do with the Christian life. And that's the way that we have to approach them. This has to do with imitating Christ. So we need to understand and know how it is that we are to imitate Christ. This is as the apostle says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Philippians 3, 10 to 11, says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know Christ. He wants to be conformed to Christ, even the death of Christ. He wants to be conformed to. Now, here in our passage, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he gives us multiple reasons why it is that we should seek to know the will of Christ. There are multiple levels of authority that are found here in this one verse, all based upon the one ultimate authority, the authority of God Almighty. First, notice the authority of the Holy Apostle. He says, imitate me. And who is the me that we're talking about? The me is the Apostle Paul. So this is not some mere man, but this is one who has been chosen by Jesus Christ to be an Apostle of Jesus Christ. One who has been given unique authority over the church of Christ, so we cannot take his word lightly. We cannot take the word of the Holy Apostle as optional. And we cannot take his life as optional. Well, Paul was a super Christian but we're not super Christians, right? He was an apostle, so he could do these things, but we can't do those things. Well, yes, he is an apostle. He has that position, but he's also a believer. He's also a Christian. He's also a godly and a righteous man. And yes, we may never obtain to the same level of godliness as the apostle attained to, but that should be what we strive for. He's still an example for us to follow. We are to follow him in whatever he teaches and whatever he practices. He expects the church to receive his teaching and to imitate his manner of life because his life is the life of Christ. He is a practical, living, breathing illustration before them of what the life of Christ looks like in day-to-day -day practical application. And he wants them to follow in his footsteps to walk in the ways of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. 
1 Corinthians 1.1 says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. There, this is Paul, the Paul who was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Called by whom? Not himself. He did not elect himself to this position, but called by the will of God. So God called him, God conferred this position, this title, this honor of an apostle of Jesus Christ upon this man. He set him apart for this task, and as an apostle, he is to be imitated in what he does, because he's doing the will of God. Also, notice he says similar things in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. says, For this reason we also constantly thank God, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endure the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins." But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So here the apostle is commending the church in Thessalonica because when he came to them and when he delivered the word to them, they received it not as a word from man, but for what it truly was, and that is the very word of God. And also notice that these churches, this church in Thessalonica, was an imitator of the churches in Judea imitating them in their sufferings. That just as the churches in Judea suffered at the hands of their countrymen, so these churches in Thessalonica are also suffering at the hands of their countrymen as well. So he commends them for their imitation, that they were imitating the other churches. So the apostles' teaching, the apostles' manner of life, these are to be taken as authoritative, not as optional, not as opinion, not as preference, but the very word of God, the very life of Christ manifested in him. And again, just as we read from 1 Thessalonians, this was the expectation in all the churches. Not just the Jewish churches, not just the Gentile churches, not just the church in Corinth, not just the church in Thessalonica, but this is what was expected of all of the churches, regardless of what culture they found themselves regardless of whether they were in Greece or in Rome or in Asia Minor or in Judea or in Syria, wherever they found themselves, wherever the churches were founded, this was the expectation from the apostles, that they would receive the word of God and that they would imitate the life of the apostle. These are universal commands that transcend time and culture, right? Which it is worth pointing out that the apostle Paul is a Jewish man who is single, right? According to 1 Corinthians 7, 6-8, we know that the Apostle Paul was not married, that he was a single man. So a Jewish single man 
is writing to Gentile Christians who would have mostly been married, and yet he expects them to imitate him, to follow him, to do what he does, because it's universal. It's not that, well, I'm a Jew, so this is me, but you're Gentiles, and so you do this. I'm single, so I'll do this, but you're married, you do that. That's not the way he takes it. He's taking these words as authoritative and binding for everyone because they're universal. They're universal regardless of your situation, right? Regardless of your culture, regardless of the time in which you live. These are the commands of Christ, of Christ. So first, we have the authority of the apostle telling us to imitate him. Also notice in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, there is present the authority of Christ. The apostle is not the end in himself. He is the means to the greater end, and the greater end, the ultimate goal of the church, is to be imitators of Christ. As they imitate him, then they are also imitating Christ. His example is a means, a reflection of the example of Jesus Christ. This is what he says in Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Right? He no longer lives, but who lives in him? Christ lives in me. Right? That's the life that the apostle is living. It is the very life of Christ. As we said earlier, Jesus Christ is Lord of the church. But he exercises that lordship through the apostle, through the apostles and through the prophets, through their words and through their examples. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. There, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's what he means by imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the one that the prophets and the apostles are preaching, and he is the one that they are imitating. They're imitating Christ, and then we are to imitate them. Now, two points to be made here concerning the authority of Christ. When we speak, first, when we speak of Jesus Christ as Lord of the church, we are at the same time invoking the authority of God the Father and invoking the authority of the Holy Spirit of God. When we talk about the authority of Christ, both uh, implicitly implied in that is the authority of the Father and also the authority of the Spirit. For even Christ is not acting independently, but he is exercising his lordship over the church in perfect conformity, perfect submission to the will of his Father. Right. Right? Which is an encouragement. It's an encouragement... And an example both for men and women. Because for the women, they might say, oh, we're, we're the doormats. We always have to do the will of our husbands. Right? We have to submit to them. Well, 
Isn't that what Christ does? Doesn't Christ always submit to his Father? So being submissive is not in itself evil. It's Christ-like. It is Christ-like to submit to proper, legitimate authority, and this is the life of Christ. And then the men. Do they exercise their authority based upon their own will? Do they have unlimited authority that resides in themselves? No. Where does their authority come from? Their authority comes from who is over them, which is Christ. And just as Christ exercises his legitimate authority over the church under the submission of his father, so the man is to exercise his legitimate authority over his wife and over his children in the home, but in conformity to the will of Christ. So we have in Christ the example of perfect submission and the example of the perfect practice of authority over those entrusted to them. So Christ is not acting independently, but in perfect submission to his Father. Let's see this. John 5, John chapter 5. We'll go to the Gospel of John to prove that this is indeed the case. John chapter 5. John 5, 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. He doesn't do anything on His own. He only does what He sees His Father doing. So Christ is the imitator. He imitates the Father, the Apostle imitates Christ, and then we imitate the Apostle and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 16. John 7, 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. It's not originating with me, he says. It originates with the Father who sent me. And then I am proclaiming to you what the Father has spoken to me. Chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 26. Chapter 8, verse 26. It says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. Jesus said, "When When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There, I do nothing of my own initiative. Jesus did not do one single thing of his own initiative. He did everything according to to the will of his Father. So is it evil to submit? No, not to proper, legitimate authority, because all authority ultimately comes from who? It comes from God, yes. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 44. John 12, 44 says, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me 
will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my saying has one who judges him. The word that I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. So there, when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, we are at the same time imitating who? The Father. The Father as well, because what Jesus does comes from the Father. So the authority of Christ is there, but also the authority of his Father. But also the authority of the Spirit. Right? What is the role of the Spirit? Well, the Spirit of Christ is the one who is with us, who is present, who is not acting independently of the Father. He's not acting independently of the Son, but is working in the church in perfect conformity to the will of both the Father and the Son. The Spirit comes not to teach us new things, but to teach us, to confirm to us, the Word of Christ. John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verse 12. John 16, 12. It says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Spirit, when he comes, he's not speaking on his own initiative, but he's speaking whose word? He's speaking to us the very word of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is teaching the church to follow, to imitate Jesus Christ. And this he does through the word of Christ. The spirit of Christ declares the word of Christ to the church of Christ. This means that the spirit and the word are never separated. The spirit and the word are always working together in perfect harmony and perfect unison. And if the word of God is not central to the ministry, then it is not a ministry of the spirit of Christ. Now, I say this because there are many ministries today that boast of being filled with the Spirit. They're led by the Spirit. They have the power of the Spirit. Yet in nearly all of these ministries, in these churches, right, with these pastors who talk about and say and boast so much about having the presence of the Spirit, you will find little to no teaching of the Bible. That they are not committed to serious Consistent, simple, clear, authoritative, accurate teaching of the word of Christ. But then they claim to have the spirit of Christ. You see how inconsistent this is with the teaching of the Bible? The spirit of Christ is not there. There is a spirit there. It's just not the spirit of Christ. It is the spirit of the Antichrist. That is who is there, and that is what is in those ministries. The spirit is found where the word of God is. Where the word of God is being accurately, authoritatively proclaimed, that is where the spirit of Christ is. 
whether we have goosebumps or not, whether we're crying or not, whether we're jumping into the baptistry or not, right, and flailing around, running up and down the aisles, right, none of that means anything. What matters is the word of Christ. And this because the Spirit's role is to teach us the mind of Christ, to teach us to imitate Christ, to form his mind in our mind, in his life, in our life. And where do we find the mind and the life of Christ? In the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. That's where the mind of Christ is found. If someone isn't quoting the Bible, if they don't have a biblical basis, a biblical reason for what they're saying, whatever they say about their good intentions, about how they fear God, and whatever it is that they're saying, they don't. Right? You know that they're rotten to the core because they're trusting in their own pompous wisdom instead of trusting in the wisdom of God. And according to 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, we know that no prophecy of Scripture was ever a matter of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the act of human will, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. So then, in the word of Christ, right, whether we're talking about the present issue at hand, which is the head coverings, or any other issue, we have a fourfold authority. The authority of the Father, the authority of the Son, the authority of the Spirit, and the authority of the prophet or the apostle who wrote the Word of God. So we have to take it seriously. That's the point. We must take it very seriously. Now, a second point to make concerning these things. When we have a person in the church who is accurately following the command of Christ, then that person is an example for us to follow, right? Yes, the apostle was an example, and he was an apostle, but is this going to be true for us today? Are there going to be examples for us to follow, or is this only something that we can imitate the apostle in, right? What about other people? What about those in our own generation? Well, we are taught the pathway of obedience. Primarily, of course, we're taught it by the word of Christ, but we're also taught it by the example of the godly. And when we have godly persons among us, then we should see the way that they live and we should imitate their faith in those things that are consistent with the word of God. Right? Godly living is commended to us through the example of the righteous. This was true of the Apostle Paul, not simply because he was an apostle, but because he was a righteous man who was living a sincere and a devout Christian life. He was an example of the life of Christ. And imitation was not exclusive to Jesus and the prophets and the apostles, because that's what people will say. Well, you're not Jesus. You're not a prophet. You're not an apostle. But this is what he expected, even of those who were not apostles, those who were committed to the ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Notice here that the apostle expects Timothy, who is not an apostle, he expects Timothy to be an example for the church, be an example for believers for how they are supposed to live. 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16 says, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, 
but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that in your progress, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So there, he expects Timothy to be an example, to be an example to the church in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. An example for them to follow, to see how they ought to talk, how they ought to live a pure life, right? How they ought to have the right kind of faith, right? What they are supposed to live like is to be manifested in their presence through the life of Timothy. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. It says in Hebrews 13, verse 7. So when we see something being practiced, right, or in our case, if there's something new, something different, something that we've never done before, and these things are going to come up in the life of the church because no church is perfect. We're all progressing. We're all advancing. We're all trying to come to the proper understanding of the Bible. So when something comes up on an issue like head coverings, and we see that there are those in the church adopting it, and we know and we consider that this person isn't a maniac, she's not a deviant, right? She's not some crazy person. They're not legalists. They're not greedy for gain, but they're sober-minded Christians who want to know and do the will of God, then that ought to be a sigh of relief for us. That ought to be an encouragement, a motivation for the rest of us to follow in their example. Not that we shouldn't seek to know and understand from the Bible. Of course we should seek to know and understand from the Bible. Of course we need to be convinced from the Scripture, but the example of the godly provides more confidence. It gives us a more reiteration, greater assurance, a greater confirmation that this is indeed consistent with the will of God. And isn't it true that many times it is seeing the Word of God displayed in the life of another that leads to growth and advancement in our own Christian life. We see something in someone else and we inquire, right? Why is it that you do this, right? Why is it that you, that you practice this? Or how is it that you came to this understanding, right? We see it, we inquire, and then they open up the Bible and they help us and they teach us. And then many times we get a greater understanding of the truth by seeing it in the life of another. Now we might ask, how can we imitate Jesus and the Apostle Paul in terms of the relationship between men and women when neither Jesus nor Paul were married, right? Neither one of them had a wife. So how can we learn anything about the roles of men and women and husbands and wives and authority and submission when neither one of them were married? Well, what, was true, what is to be true in the home was also manifested in their ministries, the way they conducted their ministries conforms to the truths, to the principles that are taught here by the apostle. Whether in the home or in the church, 
The expectation from Scripture is male authority, male headship in the home, in the church, and that was clearly seen in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus had 12 apostles, and of those 12 apostles, how many were women? There were zero. Why? Is that an accident? Is it because Jesus hated women? Was Jesus misogynistic? Was Jesus just stuck in ancient customs and he wasn't a modern man who had been trained in Ivy League schools and had come to these new progressive understandings? Though Jesus did have many women disciples, there were many women who followed him. Many of them were very faithful followers of Christ. And he did confer great honor upon the women in contrast to the men, because when he resurrected, who did he appear to first? He appeared to the women first, not to the men. Because when he was on the cross, where were the men? Most of them hit the road, and who was there ministering to him? It was there that the women were there. So he gave them that honor. Yet in terms of teaching, in terms of authority in the church, he appointed only men to the office of apostles. And when he sent them out two by two, preaching and teaching, he didn't send out women, but he sent out men doing these things. He could have sent out the women, but he did not do that. And this is not because the women in the ancient times were uneducated. That's what false interpreters say. Well, the reason Jesus only had male apostles and the reason the Bible <clears throat> teaches that only men can be pastors is because ancient women were uneducated. Well, first, that is extremely pompous for people to say that, and I would beg to differ. I would say that most of those ancient women were more educated and had more understanding of reality and how to live in the real world than someone who graduates from Harvard or Yale, one of these women with gender studies degrees. Put them in their world and see how they survive. But put one of them in our world and they'd go right along, right? Wouldn't have any problem. We'd be like, man, who is this woman? She can do everything. Right, this is the way. So this idea that they were uneducated, and that's why they were not put in these positions, is complete, utter nonsense. And also, isn't it true that the disciples were uneducated? Yes, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, this is one of the things that the people were marveling at, that they considered that Peter and John were uneducated and untrained men. But how did they have such teaching? How did they have such authority? How did they have such understanding of the scriptures? Because they were untrained men. Untrained in the sense of formal education. But then they remembered what? That they were with Christ. They were with Jesus. So why did Jesus only appoint men as apostles? Because he understood the proper roles of men and women. And he understood those things because he created them. Right? He is the one who created them as male and female. He understood 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Notice what it says. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Jesus believed in these roles of authority. The Father to Christ, Christ to the man, the man to the woman. And this is why he put men in positions of teaching to instruct other men, but also to instruct the women. But he did not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. 
Jesus didn't do this, and the Apostle Paul didn't do it, because it is rooted and goes back to creation. So then, what role did the women have? Well, notice Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. What role did the women have in creation? She was created to be a helper to the man. Adam wasn't created for Eve. Eve was created for Adam because there was not a helper suitable for him. Well, then notice Luke chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So what role were the women playing? Helpers. They were helping, they were assisting in the ministry, not by getting up on stage and preaching and teaching and being up front, but doing those things that are necessary behind the scenes in order to make it to where Jesus and the disciples are free to focus their time and attention on the preaching of the word of Christ and they don't have to concern themselves with where they're going to, what they're going to eat today, where they're going to stay, how they're going to get this, how they're going to get that. So were the women playing a vital role in the ministry of Christ? And the answer is yes but just not up front because they were not put in the position of authority, but they were the helpers that were there assisting in these other things. And this is the way it's supposed to be in the home as well. Man created first, then woman for the man. And man not created for woman, but woman for the man. Jesus knows and understands these things because he's the one that created the man and the woman. He's the one that defined the roles in the very beginning. So what the apostle is teaching here is not, again, coming from his own mind, but it is the mind of Christ. This is the way even that Jesus conducted himself during his time on earth, and it's seen in his ministry. We just need to extend it out into the home as well. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. Notice there, man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So when we are practicing the proper roles of men and women in the church, in the home, when we're promoting this distinction, both in the ways that we order ourselves, right, which we should do, we should not have the women up front leading in the service. They should not be the ones that are doing those types of things as is happening in many churches today. But it should be the men who are leading, the men who are taking the initiative, the men who are praying, who are reading the scripture, who are teaching the word of God, and then they are the ones that are helping and teaching their wives in the home. We need to promote this distinction both in the way that we order the church and then this is also the reason for the symbol of the head covering is to be a visible reminder of the proper roles and distinctions in the order in the church between men and women so that things don't get out of order which is what so often happens. Because when it gets out of order, it leads to what? Chaos. Chaos, confusion, disorder, and then every vile practice imaginable. So imitate the apostle and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we want to do? Is that not good company to stand in? Absolutely. So that's what our goal should be 
as we go forward. Okay, verse 2. 11, verse 2. 1 Corinthians eleven two. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I handed them down to you. Here the apostle begins by praising the Corinthians because in everything they had remembered the apostles' teaching. Now when he says this, he doesn't mean that they were a perfect church. We know that's the case because much of the letter is him addressing the many sins that were present and persistent in the church. So when he says, I praise you in everything, he means in everything that is good. Right? It wasn't a church that was thoroughly and completely and wholly corrupt. Yes, they had many corruptions that he's addressed, but there were other things where they were doing the will of God. And in those areas where they did the will of God, he's praising them. They need to be commended because in some things they were doing the will of God. In those things that were good and right, they received the commendation of the apostle. And one of those is that they are holding firm to the traditions that were delivered to them by the apostle. The apostle delivered to the church various traditions, and they were holding firmly to these traditions. Now, here we must ask, what does he mean by traditions? Right? Aren't traditions evil? Aren't traditions bad? This is what people believe today. They believe traditions are evil, and traditions can be evil, but not necessarily. He cannot mean here traditions of men, traditions that have no rooting in the Bible and are just matters of opinion, matters of a preference, something that was made up by a man, a group of men, a society, a culture, a custom. You know, this is just the way that we do things. But that has no basis in the Bible. It's impossible that that's what he's referring to when he's talking about traditions because traditions of men are evil and they contradict the very word of God. Mark chapter 7. Don't take my word for it, but notice what it says in the word of God. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Here, the point being the distinction between biblical traditions and traditions of men, right? Traditions of men. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And it seemed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they do, which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots." The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts, the precepts of man. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men." He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses says, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I, would have, uh, whatever I have that would have helped you is korban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. 
thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So here, the traditions of the elders invalidate and contradict the very word of God. And this is what the traditions of men do. The traditions that originate from men and ultimately originate from the devil have as their purpose to invalidate and overthrow the very word of God. But here, he's speaking of traditions as a good thing, something that he has handed down to them. This is why he cannot mean that these are mere human traditions that the apostle has made up and that he has delivered to them. So he must mean here, these traditions are practices in the church that are founded upon the word of God. The way the church orders and conducts itself day in and day out, right? Week after week, year after year, generation after generation, there are many things that can be called traditions. Things, practices, manners, right? Conduct that persist in the life of the church over the course of time. And isn't that true that many of the things that we do, we do week after week? Every time we meet together, we're doing the same things over and over and over again, right? We don't just take the Lord's Supper one time in the life of the church and then that's it. It's a regular part of our worship, a regular part of our practice. It's something that we're doing frequently. And in that regard, it can be called a tradition. But it's not an evil tradition because that tradition comes from where? It comes from the Word of God. So the issue then is not whether it's a tradition. The presence of a tradition is not the issue. The issue is always the source. Where did the tradition come from? If the source of a tradition is the wisdom of men, then it is evil. But if the source of the tradition is the wisdom of God found in the word of Christ, then it is good. So in this regard, he says, I delivered a tradition to you where did the tradition come from? Who is the source of this tradition that the Corinthian church is holding firmly to? We'll notice what he says. He says, just as I handed them down to you. They were handed down to the church from the apostle, but they were handed to the apostle from somewhere else. He received it from someone, and then he related, he handed it down to them, and he received it from the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Notice here the wording is the same. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And then he goes on to give the explanation of the Lord's Supper. So I received it from the Lord, and then I delivered it to you. This is a tradition. Received from Christ to the apostle, and then he delivered it there to the church. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is also true in regards to doctrine, not just to ordinance or some symbol, but even of doctrines as well. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 
So I delivered to you what I received from Christ. Now again, notice chapter 11, verse 2. Just as I delivered them to you. So he received this from Christ, and then he is the one delivering this tradition to the church. So these are apostolic traditions. Traditions that originate with the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, what he's going to talk about cannot be cultural. It cannot be a cultural issue. It cannot be a tradition or a practice that originates in the city of Corinth. That is a custom of that city, of that people, and that's why he's saying that they do it. Because here it's clear, where did the tradition come from? The tradition originated with Christ and came to the apostle. Now I say this because the most common interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, and specifically the issue of the symbol, the literal, visible, physical symbol of a head covering, what most interpreters will say today is that the head covering is a cultural issue. They say the underlying principles are true for all generations, but the symbol, the head covering, was just something that was cultural. It was for the people of Corinth, but it's not for future generations. And nearly all commentators will agree and say that what the apostle is talking about is a literal head covering. So they agree that that's what he's talking about, but it's just not for us today. It's only for those who lived in Corinth in the first century because it applied to their culture. Though we'll see as we go through this passage, he never mentions Corinth at all. He doesn't mention the culture. He doesn't mention the customs of the people. That's not what he's talking about. Never one time does the culture of Corinth ever come up in his argument, yet this is what most people use today to explain away what this passage is teaching. Women were wearing a covering during worship in the first century in Corinth. And this was because either there were cult temple prostitutes that shaved their head, or they went around with their hair showing, and this was a way for the Christian women to signify that they were not a part of idolatry and that they were not prostitutes. Or some will say that just as we wear rings today as a symbol that you're married, this was the way that women in Corinth in the first century, this is the way that they signified or symbolized to everyone else that they were married. It's by wearing a head covering. And so they did that, but we wear rings. Therefore, it's not something that is applicable today. This is what, if you read a modern commentator on this passage, this is what they will say, and this is the argument they will make. Now, I say this. This is common, modern interpretation today. Head coverings were merely cultural for that culture, but not for our culture, not for other cultures, just Corinth, just Corinth, or just Greek culture in the first century. This is the common belief in the churches today, and this is what you will find in nearly all modern commentaries, those that have been written in the 20th century until the present day. You might find some that are blatant, right, in their rejection of these things. If you read the women's Bible commentary, they will flat out say the Apostle Paul hates women, the Apostle Paul is wrong, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and they will say we don't agree with the Apostle Paul. More sober-minded commentaries who have more modesty and more self-control, they will say it's only cultural. 
the underlying principles are true, that yes, there needs to be male headship, women need to submit to their husbands, but in terms of the outward visible symbol of the head covering, that was just for the culture and is not to be practiced today. Now again, this is in newer commentaries. But this is not the common interpretation in the history of interpretation. This is in the 20th century, but if you go back beyond that, if you go back into the history of interpretation, what I will be teaching is what is commonly believed and what was commonly taught, and this is what was commonly practiced in all of the Christian churches for many, many generations. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Knox, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Bunyan, John Gill, Charles Spurgeon, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, all of them taught and believed what I'm going to teach and what I believe, that it was still applicable for women in the public gathering to wear the head covering and that this is what was practiced in their churches as well. So the belief and practice of the modern church is the exception to the rule in terms of the practice of the church and in terms of the history of interpretation. Now, I point these things out not because we need history and not because we need the authority of men to establish any doctrine or any practice. Right? We have the word of God. I'm simply pointing out that, yes, this may seem new and novel and bizarre to us, but what is common to us is bizarre to the history of interpretation and to the history of the practice of the church. And this cannot merely be a cultural issue because it doesn't make any sense, right, within the context of the passage. What are we talking about here in verse 1? Imitation of Christ. Imitation of Christ. Is that cultural or is that for all Christians of all time? That's for all Christians. We're talking about traditions delivered to the church by the apostle of Christ, handed down to him by Jesus Christ himself. So it can't be that this is just for Corinth and for no one else. This is not the way the Bible comes to us. And notice, just in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. What he's telling the church in Corinth, he's reminding them that this isn't just for you. This is what I tell all of the churches. Right? And he went to churches in many different cultures. So it's not like in the ancient world there was one monolithic culture, but there were many different cultures, many different regions. They all had their unique culture, but what he expected of all of the churches, regardless of where they found themselves, whether they were in Asia Minor, whether they were in Rome, whether they were in Greece, whether they were in Judea, wherever they were at, none of that mattered. All that mattered is that they obey the will of Christ, and his expectation in all of those churches was the same. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17 says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct it in all the churches. So this is what I expect. This is what I direct. He says in all the churches. It's not unique to you Corinthians. I'm telling everyone the same thing. This is what I expect of them as well. Also, chapter 11. Notice verse 16. It says, But if one is inclined to be contentious, that is to push back and reject the word of God, he says, We have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. I have no other practice, 
and nor do any of the other churches of God. So if you're rejecting this, then you are rejecting what I believe, the apostle, and what all the other churches are practicing, what it is that they are doing. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 23. Chapter 11, verse 23. It says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, when he gives the instructions on the Lord's Supper, is that just for Corinth? Is that just cultural? We understand that is not cultural because what do we do regularly? We take the Lord's Supper, though we don't live in Corinth, and we're not in the first century. We're in 21st century America, yet we practice this because we understand rightfully that what he's teaching here is a universal principle that's true for all churches. So why is it that chapter 11, 23 is universal, but chapter 11, 1 to 16 is cultural? See, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense any sense at all. And then chapter 14, verse 33. Verse 33, 14:33 says, "For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says." Notice that. Just as the law also says. Well, when was the law written in relation to the Corinthians? Years ago, 1,400 years before. So 1,400 to 1,500 years before the Corinthians lived, the law was written before this city even existed. And yet, what he's teaching them was also taught in the law that was given by Moses. It's not a new teaching. It's not something just for your culture. It's not something peculiar to you people. This is what I teach in all the churches, and this is what the law teaches as well, and has taught for hundreds and hundreds of years. That the men should lead, the men should have authority, the men should teach, and then in the assembly, the women should remain silent. And then if they have a question, where should they speak up at? Well, notice what he says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. Notice that. The Lord's commandments for everyone. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So, yes, he's addressing specific issues related to the church in Corinth, but they're broader. They apply to everyone. They apply, his teaching applies to all churches in all generations. How can everything in the letter be universal, be applicable for all churches, but then right in the middle of it, we have a teaching that's just for Christians in Corinth in the first century today. That's not the way the Bible is written. This is the same thing people do with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, they will say, yes, all of the Ten Commandments are applicable except the Seventh Commandment, except the Fourth. And they'll say, because it's ceremonial. It's ceremonial, and it was only for Israel, and the rest of them are moral. Does that make any sense at all? That you have Ten Commandments, 
All of them are moral, except right in the middle you have some ceremonial commandment that only applies for one specific group of people for only one period of time. It doesn't make any sense. But people do that for what reason? So that they don't have to obey it. So that they can reject it and they don't have to do what it says. We cannot approach the Bible in this way. Once you open that door, this is Pandora's box. When you open up that cultural door, well, who's to say what is and isn't culture? Right? Who gets to determine which culture and what culture and, and what is good and what is right? Because this is what they will say about the issue of sodomy today. They will say, well, in their culture it was a sin, but in our culture it's okay for two men to get married. Well, if we permit it in these other areas, why can't they do it in that area? This is the slippery slope that you begin to go upon when you're not taking the Word of God seriously. When you're looking for escape hatches, loopholes, to get out from doing the Word of God. It cannot be the case. This isn't how the Bible is written, and it's not to be read or interpreted in this way. And I can probably guarantee that most of us, if not all of us, have never heard a thorough teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Right? This is probably the case. I know it's my experience. This is the case in my upbringing. No one ever talked about this. And then you read it and you're like, I've got no idea what he's talking about. It must be cultural. Or if you ask someone, they'll just say, yeah, it's cultural without giving you any explanation. Right? If it is cultural, then prove it to me. Where in this argument, where in this chapter is he saying this is cultural? Where is he appealing to the customs that were true and prevalent in Corinth? He's not doing that at all. And yet people throw this out there as if it has some basis in reality. But it doesn't. It does not have a basis in reality. This is not the case. These are traditions delivered to the church by Jesus Christ through the apostle. This is the tradition that the Apostle Paul taught all the churches. And if he was present in our day, this is the tradition that he would deliver to us as well. And there has never been in the history of the church one monolithic culture. But the churches find themselves in many various different cultures, yet his expectation for all the churches is exactly the same, no matter what the church or no matter what the culture says about it. And we will see as we go through this passage that the argument, the rationale for the women wearing the head covering is not rooted in culture. What does he go back to? He always goes back to creation. It's rooted in creation, which means it precedes and supersedes any culture because it goes back to the very creation of the world. He says nothing about the culture of Corinth. Also, who are these experts on Corinthian culture in the first century? Who are their sources? That, that's something you should ask. When people say these kinds of things, ask them, well, who, who told you that? What's your source for knowing what the customs of Corinth in the first century were? Because they don't have any sources. They just throw this stuff out there as if it's based in reality. It's not. They just say it, press them on these kinds of things. Okay, so anyway, he grounds the tradition in creation, in nature, and these things transcend all cultures. That's why we have to seek to understand what is he saying? What does he mean? What is he saying? How does it apply? How do we practice it? How do we keep it? And when we seek those things, and if we're humble and we want to know the mind of Christ, we can understand what the Bible says, and we can understand what this passage teaches. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The sheep of Christ follow the voice of Christ. Is this in the Bible? Yes. The voice of Christ is in this passage. So we need to understand what does it mean so that we can follow the voice of Christ. That should be our goal, not only in this issue. This should be it for every, every single issue. This is what we should want to know. What is the mind of Christ? What is the life of Christ? How do I conform my life to the life of Christ? And if that is our goal and our desire, then I am confident that we can come to the proper and right understanding of this passage and know how it is that it applies to our life in the 21st century in America today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have delivered to us Lord, your, your mind, the very mind of Christ on all of the issues that the Bible addresses. Lord, everything that we need to know for life, for godliness, Lord, it is found in your word. And it teaches us your mind. It teaches us the very life of Christ. Lord, it gives to us traditions, Lord, that do not originate from men. Lord, we don't want those traditions. We don't want customs that come from men because we know that they're evil that they have no basis in truth, that they come from the devil and they will only lead to our ruin and destruction. Lord, we want our customs. We want our practices. Lord, what it is that we do, both in our individual lives, Lord, in our homes, in our families, Lord, in our marriages, in our church, in society, wherever we go, Lord, we want our customs, our practices, to conform to the mind of Christ. We want the life of Christ to be manifested in us because we have died with Christ Jesus and he has been raised within us that the life that we live is not our own. We have been bought with a price and we are to honor you with our body. Lord, for us to live is to be as Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us. Lord, give us a teachable and a humble spirit Lord, we know and recognize that there are so many things in the Bible that, Lord, we have not been taught. Lord, many things that we have not seen practiced. Lord, we know that the state of the church in our own generation is, Lord, it's not good. There's much unfaithfulness. There are very few who are taking serious the Bible and seeking to understand and apply every precept of yours. Lord, that's what we want to do. Lord, and if that means that we're fanatics and that we're maniacs, then Lord, may we be fanatics for Christ and may we be maniacs for you. But Lord, we pray that we would have your approval and that we would have your mind. So Lord, we ask for you to teach us. And as we go forward through this passage, Lord, help us to understand, give us clarity. Lord, whatever cloudiness, whatever confusion is there, and Lord, we know that it is because there are so many things that are, Lord, against this, Lord, against your word. But Lord, we pray that you would take all of those things away and that your spirit would teach us and that he would help us to see and to understand your will so that we might clearly hear your voice so that we can follow you in all things. And that, Lord, it may be for our good, Lord, for our sanctification. Lord, to bring greater glory and honor to you. So, Lord, we ask for your help, Lord, knowing that 
we are very weak. Lord, in ourselves, we have absolutely nothing. Lord, we can't even understand anything apart from the Spirit. So we ask for your Spirit to teach us your will so that we might conform our life in all things to the mind and to the life of Christ. So Lord, help us in these things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.